Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey guys, before I share this next conversation, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who have continued to support the podcast with your monthly donations. And for anyone who also wants to support it, it's really easy. All you do is go to littleknownfactspodcast.com and you'll see that there's a contributions page when you look at the homepage menu and it explains how to donate. And when I say no donation is too small, I really mean mean it. Even a dollar a month will make a huge difference in my being able to share these episodes with you every week. So thank you to those who have already given. Thank you in advance to those who might contribute in the future. And without further ado, here's the next episode of Little Known Facts. Enjoy. Little known fact about my guest today, she is a beloved theater producer. She is a prolific author and theater historian, having written many volumes of a series of books called The Untold Stories of Broadway. And really interesting and particularly relevant is her deep dive most recently into what happened to the theater world and actors specifically during the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918 and how many ways that is relevant to what we're experiencing today during the corona pandemic. Welcome the extraordinary, inspirational Jennifer Ashley Tepper once again to the podcast. Hello, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Alana Levine, and thank you for having me. I am so happy. I have uh, wanted so much to talk to you because when I think of A, a voice of reason, and B, someone who might be able to share some insights and thoughts about the future of theater as a historian who has gone so deeply into the past 
of of theater storytelling and theater making. Um, I have been dying to talk to you uh, for your wisdom and comfort that you bring me in in life in non-pandemic days and pandemic days. So thank you. Um, Before we get into our conversation and catch up on everything you've been doing and thoughts about the future, just tell me where you are and um, how do I find you today, spiritually and emotionally and physically? I am in New York City, like so many of us, you know, um, looking out my window at people walking by in masks, which is good. Um, You know, I'm hanging in there. I'm doing okay. I think so many of us are just like taking it day by day and trying to, um, you know, figure out what we can do to help and also to keep ourselves sane. So um, every day is just like a combination of that. But I'm, you know, healthy and doing okay in my apartment. I'm really glad. Um, You know, so many of the conversations that I've been having since March 12th, which was, you know, the time where the governor of New York um, and governors all over the country started shutting down at first venues over 500 seats and then slowly all venues. Um, And I know where I was when I found out my show was being shut down early. And I wonder where you were when word came down that all production, theater, film, television, uh, was going to stop for a while. We didn't know how long at the time, but we knew certainly we had a long road ahead. So tell me your shutdown story. I was on my first day um, on the Tick, Tick, Boom movie set the day of the- Of course you were. <laughs> Um, which was pretty wild um, because I had a ticket to the first preview of Flying Over Sunset that night. And I was talking about how I was excited to see it um, when several people on set were like, you're not going to see it, you know, Broadway's shutting down tonight. And I was like, are you sure it's going to happen tonight? Like, it's 4 p.m. What, what's going to happen so quickly? And they were like, no, this is it. It's about to happen. Um, and then it did. So that is a memory I will definitely not forget. It was very crazy. Yeah. So Tick, Tick, Boom, for the one person who may not know, uh, was a, I think it was originally a one man, was it a Jonathan Larson solo performance originally before it became a fuller piece? Or am I making that up and hallucinating? Absolutely. It was a piece wrote as like um, his own Eric Bogosian monologue, um, like a singer-songwriter type piece. Um, and then it was expanded to a three-person musical after he sadly passed. And then now it's being expanded into a, a film. So um, as the, you know, I was on set, I'm the historian consultant on the movie. And it was my first day there when, you know, everything then shut down immediately that evening. And what was, was it their first day of principal photography or just your first day being on set? It was just my first day. You know, I'm not incredibly involved. So I was lucky to, um, you know, get to be there that day, but they had already been filming a while. And are you allowed to share what was happening the day you were there, what they were filming? Um, I don't think I'm allowed to share it, but God, I'm so excited for that all to be known when we're back in action. Can you share who the cast is? I assume that's public knowledge. Yeah. So a bunch of cast has been announced and, um, you know, the movie's being led by Andrew Garfield as Jonathan, who's just incredible and remarkable. And, you know, I can't wait for people to see his performance, but a a bunch of the casting has been announced. And honestly, you know, just like theater, it's the same thing with film and TV. Everyone's just kind of hanging in there and waiting to see when it might come back. And is it a musical film or is it a play of the musical? No, it's a, um, it's definitely the musical. Um, it's a movie version of, uh, the musical. Oh my God. And so, 
you know, just to catch people up, one of the reasons that I can imagine Jennifer Ashley Tepper was asked to be a consultant on this film is the years and years you spent in Washington researching Jonathan Larson for an incredible album that dropped recently and a show that was done at your home away from home, 54 Below, called The Jonathan Larson Project, um, which was really one of the most extraordinary evenings I ever got to witness. And I felt so lucky to be there when you did the show. But now there's an album that everybody can hear, even if they didn't happen to be in New York that week. Um, and so is that the connective tissue between you being involved in the movie and and why you were there that day? Yeah, you know, um, my work with Jonathan's legacy has definitely uh, expanded in all kinds of directions I didn't expect. But Lin-Manuel Miranda, who had been working on the Tick, Tick, Boom film for a while, he knew about, um, you know, that I was in process on the Jonathan Larson project when he asked me to work on the movie. Um, And that was, you know, before either of those things was announced. So uh, it goes back a long time. But I feel like my my love for Jonathan Larson and his legacy goes back, you know, decades, actually. So Right, right. And (laughs) what does it mean to be... Um, a consultant in this way on a movie. I know there are, you know, when when a medical film is being done, they have medical experts and and all sorts of kinds of consultants are part of very, you know, varied projects. What does it mean specifically in a movie based on Jonathan Larson's work? You know, it's my responsibility to kind of be the voice of history. So I'm there for perspective on what Tick, Tick, Boom was, who the people that Jonathan was writing about were, what the real life events of the story, um, you know, were about. So I can lend it, um, you know, I, I have certain facts and like pieces of Jonathan's life in, um, you know, paper form and in audio form that I can uh, show to people that will help, you know, help with what they're working on. Got it. Got it. So you wear so many hats in this community. And I'm curious, as you think about either from actual conversations you've had with people who are in the trenches of creating the future of theater and what that looks like, and your own thoughts on how this can happen, I'd love to just pick your brain or hear anything you want to share as you've been musing and talking about this thing that we're all obsessed with. Yeah, you know, it's when everyone's using the word unprecedented and it it starts to like kind of numb you, but it's Mm -hmm. true. It really really is unprecedented. And I've done so much digging in Broadway history and New York City history to try to figure out times when, um, you know, there were similar crises and public health problems and situations where Broadway shut down. Um, And of course, there are similarities and there are parallels and there are things to learn from. But I think the bottom line is that um, nothing is like this time, but also like nothing was like any of those times when they happened either. So you kind of have to just take what you can take and know that this is such a, you know, unique circumstance we're dealing with. Um, I think that for a lot of people, the scary part is we just don't know, you know, the bottom line is safety. The bottom line is, you know, people on stage and off stage need to be safe. And there are more questions than answers still months into this about what's that, what that's going to entail. Um, and the most basic tenets of making theater, even in the most socially distanced version, would require people walking walking by each other to get to a seat and people on stage being within six feet of each other. Um, It's just really hard to like wrap your head around it. And nobody is an expert of public health and of, um, you know, 
theater making. So we all have to really be working with um, experts in other fields to figure this out. Um, that said, you know, I think that it's scary. I think that we should all be incredibly hopeful. I don't think that theater is dead. Um, I think that we're entering a new era and that whenever things start back up, it's not going to be at full throttle for quite a bit of time. And we're all going to have to like be part of that gradual rebuild that's going to happen. Well, when you look at how did you make the decision around 54 below and shutting that down and and literally like how did you handle that? And how, how many seats are there in your venue? There are 147 seats. Um, and so, you know, certainly we've been having as many conversations as we can about um, maybe we could try this for safety precautions. Maybe we can do this. You know, we've been having those discussions. Um, we shut down the same day that Broadway shut down. It didn't okay. feel like there um, would be any... Um, you know, ability to proceed safely. And the, like the fact that the theater industry shut down felt like a sign to us that it was the right thing for us to do as well. Um, so, you know, that day that everything happened, I was on the phone and on email with all of the artists, um, who were coming up, uh, postponing shows, canceling them. It's been an interesting process with 54 below because unlike, um, you know, a, show on Broadway, off Broadway, or anywhere else where you have one cast and one group of backstage technicians and, you know, one set of musicians and so on. Uh, we have, you know, as you know, we have three shows a night or two shows a night. So on a rolling basis, I've been uh, reaching out to artists to either postpone or cancel or adjust um, and doing that like a month and a half at a time, which is to say that the day of the shutdown, I canceled or postponed then you know, the month that was to come. And then, you know, every couple of weeks we reevaluate because obviously we're hoping to open as soon as it's safe um, and just like figuring out on a week to week basis, you know, how many more shows we should cancel. So I don't know the business of um, there's there's a whole like real estate business that's also a part of theater. So when you look at 54 Below, um, is that building owned by investors in 54 Below? Do you guys pay rent? Is there, how does that work if yeah. you're not open? No, I mean, we rent the venue the same as I rent my apartment, you know? So what's interesting during this time is that, um, you know, all of the businesses from Shetler to, um, you know, the Copacabana, which just announced that it's not going to be able to reopen. A lot of what's going on is that every single, I won't say every single, but most theaters and most theater related businesses, um, you know, they have a landlord that's not them. And um, there's lots of intricacies of that. And um, the bottom line, though, is like every uh, every one of these theaters and theater businesses has costs that they're incurring, even when they're making zero income. So um, that might be rent or there might be some kind of rent deal. Um, but it's also, you know, things you don't think about. Like we have, you know, equipment and a piano and it's not, you know, impossible to pay for the pr proper air conditioning when you have 18 shows a week. But when you don't, you're like, oh, we, we pay the air conditioning bill. You know, all of the little things that add up when it's months on end of not having a business. Um, it starts to make you see why a lot of these businesses um, might unfortunately have to, you know, fold before they can even try to reopen because they don't have the money to get through the shutdown. Um, and then there's the whole conversation of like for everyone who's reopening, like the investment in advertising and in what's going to be needed to rebuild audiences um, is just that's a, a huge investment that's going to have to come from somewhere, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big question marks. How do you, I mean, I think so much about what are all of the Broadway show reps doing right now? I mean, all the businesses beyond the show itself, all of the marketing people, all of the different um, arms of this industry that are so far reaching in that way. Well, I would imagine, and maybe you could talk about it, you know, we, we know and love your ongoing creative relationship with Joe Iconis and the family that is Joe Iconis and family. We, we are aware of a lot of different projects that you guys have been workshopping or are at various stages of um, working on. How are you, what, what are you working on right now? What are the future projects that you're excited about when we can all be together again? Um, You know, we were really lucky to have the Broadway Bounty Hunter recording that was in the cans. We were able to release that during quarantine, which um, was just really lovely because even though there were certainly a lot of things we would have liked to do, like gather in person and listen to the album together, for the most part, um, you know, a lot of what was special about sending that out into the world could be done online, which is like, we're very grateful for, um, you know, the technology available in the year 2020, so to speak. So uh, we were able to release that album, which has gone out into the world and people are enjoying it. And that's been really great. Um, And we're working on next steps for everything. Um, But, you know, Be More Chill was running in London when the shutdown happened. So, um, you know, had plans for Chicago, as you know. So, you know, it was certainly we're in the same boat as a lot of people with the just waiting to figure out what happens next. Um, But that said, you know, for both Joe and myself, and then for a lot of the people we work with, I think everyone is just um, incubating. And whether that means writing, whether that means, um, you know, working on themselves, I'm doing so much reading. And I even yesterday, I was like, Joe, you should read this book, because I think something in it might spark something that, you know, he could end up writing about six years from now. But I think the point is that, like, however, people are able to, you know, write or read or keep themselves creative during this time will manifest in positive things later that we don't know about. And like, it doesn't even need to mean that we put pressure on ourselves to like, write the great American novel right now. But, um, you know, I think for our group of people, we're just being supportive of each other and continuing to like do what we do and and talk about what might be next. And I see that you're also doing a book club. Yeah, you know, I was doing a really fun Broadway World book club for my first book, which was so helpful because I wrote that book in 2013. And as the beginning of quarantine found me writing um, a first draft and finishing up a fourth volume um, first draft, I was really like taken by reading the first one again and doing it with a book club. So um, yeah, it was really fun to kind of connect with people and nerd out about all the stories in book one that I had forgotten about. And um, it's like kind of ghost-like. I'm reading a younger version of myself at the Lyceum you know (laughs) well I wanted so will there be will you be doing more of that or did you finish sort of the first round of book club that finished, you know, it was, we did uh, once, one a week, um, and for each chapter in book one, and then that was really it to do book one. Um, certainly, it could be fun to do one of the other volumes. But for now, I'm trying to, um, you know, focus a little bit on writing at the time being. Yeah, more volumes, more future volumes. <laughs> Have you ever attempted to write a play or a screenplay? Um, You know, what's funny about that is it actually was my major in college, but it wasn't because I wanted to do it professionally. Um, I went to NYU for dramatic writing because I really loved theater and I really loved writing. And there wasn't an NYU major um, for someone who didn't want to perform but wanted to do theater. So I weirdly ended up spending most of my time, um, you know, creating my own 
you know, education and doing all of that. But my major was technically uh, playwriting and screenwriting. So I came upon my thesis project, which was a screenplay uh, a couple days ago during quarantine. Um, But in professional life, I think, you know, at some point I might have one in me, but it's not like my career aim. What was the screenplay about for your thesis project? And can we do a Zoom reading of it? I really want to. Oh my God, Alana, it's so bad, but it's so funny. Um, I wanted to train my musical theater historian brain as a college student. And I was like, what can I do for my thesis that will teach me what I want to learn? And so I adapted one of my favorite books into a screenplay, which is Ted Chapin's Everything Was Possible, the Birth of the Musical Follies. Um, so what was really fun was that I got to, you know, reread one of my favorite books and figure out how to dramatize it. And it's it's not good. Um, but it was a really wonderful educational lesson to like adapt a work of theater history in that way. It really was. And um and yeah, I, I posted a couple of little things on Instagram about it, but it's not very good. That said, um, you know, I will say like I am doing some writing during this time that's not untold stories and just trying to figure out what other kinds of things might be inside my brain. Wow. You know, Every time I see you, every time I talk to you, I think about like the amount of positivity that you put out into the world, the way you um, just navigate life. It's just inspiring to me. And I have had the great pleasure of meeting your mom and your sister over the past couple of years. I know there is a much larger extended Tepper family, and I hope to get to meet them one by one as time goes on. But I think so much about um, you as a young person, and I wonder, when did you sort of, I mean, and maybe you don't see yourself this way, it's how I perceive you. I The word confident always comes to mind for me when I think about you, and certainly brave. And I wonder if you can talk about when you look back at yourself as a young person, where the seeds of that were planted and, and were you, were there role models in your life that you sort of saw how they navigated the world? Did you get tremendous positive feedback? Were you born this way? Like, how do you see, did you wake up like this, Jen Tepper? I think, you know, it's a combination of all of those things. Um, I did think about it recently. One of my very best friends commented to me about, um, I posted a photo of myself with Michael Grafe, who I love and who I worked with um, as his assistant right after I graduated college. And it was like a fun throwback photo from, I think, Next to Normal opening night. And she was like, look at how you're standing. Like, you look like, you know, and she said it in a totally nice way. It was like a, a lovely, she was like, look how much confidence you gained in the theater industry, like since that time, because I really was. I looked a little bit like I was like his terrified young, you know, child in the photo. Yes. Um, and and I like loved that. And I was like, you know what? I never think of it that way. I think of myself having been born into it. But you're right. It was like an evolution of, um, you know, learning how to be confident in your own skills and in your own power. Um, and I think, you know, working with the people I did at the beginning of my career, like the title of Shogang and Michael and um, all of those folks was very influential and taught me how to like speak up for myself because they were such good mentors. But really, um, truly the main thing was collaborating with Joe and the family um, because that was the first time that I really saw myself as someone who was a producer who could like be in charge of other artists and who could, um, you know, go into a world 
world that I cared about so much and really make a difference in it. Um, not as, you know, someone's assistant or someone observing or someone still coming up, but as like an active equal at the table. So, um, so much of like, you know, when I first started working with Joe and the family in 2009, I'll look back and be like, oh yeah, like Joe and I convinced, you know, Bryant Park to let us perform, even though everyone else was a Broadway show and we were a little Joe's Pub concert or, oh yeah, like Joe and I did this. And I'll, I'll remember those moments of having like, you know, gone up a level in confidence and be like, oh yeah, yeah, that was a process. How many years have you been running 54 Below? About seven. So you're still very young and you were like a little peanut when you started that job. How did you decide that you could do that? That you, I mean, how many shows a week are, are curated there? A lot. You know, it's, it's usually between 16 and 18 shows a week. And I, you know, 54 Below felt like the perfect thing at the perfect time. I uh, worked for Ken Davenport for like three years on Godspell and all these other shows that we did in his office. And that was like... So Ken Davenport is a Broadway producer. Yes. Um, and Broadway you were working... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. So, so when you say you were working for him in what, were you an assistant? Were you a associate producer? What, what was your role there? You know, I started off um, as his director of promotions, which was a job I got because Ken saw what I was doing on Joe's musical, Blood Song of Love at Ars Nova. And he said to me, I want to hire you to do, um, you know, what you're doing to create like grassroots promotions for that show in my office on my shows. Um, So I started out doing that. And then the job grew and I ended up, you know, having my finger a little bit in everything he did in his office, which it was such a great place to learn because mostly I was doing marketing, but really in-house he was doing general management and creative development and casting and so many different things, investor relations. Um, It was like the most amazing education. Um, And then after I'd been working for Ken for a couple of years, uh, it kind of created this thing where um, I had been working in a producer's office. I'd been working with Joe on his new work. Um, I'd been writing my book and uh, that all converged in the opportunity to program 54 Below, which involves theater history and producing and new writers. And um, it was an opportunity that came about a couple months after the club opened. uh, And the really wonderful programming director who opened it, uh, it wasn't a job for him. He wanted to produce concerts, but wasn't, you know, wanting to curate the whole venue anymore. And so the owners and the original programming director thought of me and I was like, oh, this is the perfect, you know, opportunity. So it was offered to you, like you didn't have to go in and really try for the job. (laughs) Well, I don't actually even know to this day if they were, who else they might've been considering or who else they spoke to. Um, And it certainly was, you know, a thrilling moment of me thinking like, oh, I'm going to go into this office and give it all I've got because I really want to do this. So it didn't, you know, get handed to me on a platter in that way, but definitely it just felt like the right thing at the right time. And I, I knew that it was something I wanted to do. Who was the person who introduced little Jennifer Ashley Tepper to the world of musical theater? How did that come into your consciousness? My parents, um, you know, they both love musical theater. They both work in medicine. And actually, I feel like almost every member of my family is either like a pharmacist or a doctor or my mom's an occupational therapist. So everyone, um, no one worked in the theater. No one worked in the arts. But there was always, you know, the opportunity to like go see a touring show in Florida where I grew up or listen to a cast album in the car. Um, And I was sent to theater camp when I was nine years old, which was really like the pivotal moment of discovery. So thanks, mom. Um, But yeah, (laughs) 
it was definitely um, just like learning about theater because my family really enjoyed it. Um, and then, you know, immersing myself because I knew it was what I wanted to do. And was that always your one obsession? Did you have other passions and loves? Were you Sporty Spice also? Or was it all theater all the time? Oh my God, it was all theater all the time. I used to say that I wanted to be a waitress at Fridays when I grew up, which was like inexplicable. I really loved the pins on their shirts. Um, and then I pretty much went straight from that, which was like what I wanted to do when I was seven, um, into theater and then never left. <laughs> what was your, I'm thinking about, just by the way, tears just rolled. I hate that this is only audio because I just <laughs> was taking a sip. And when you said Fridays, like tears are rolling and- I almost did a spit take. What was your college essay about when you were applying to college? Do you remember what you wrote oh about? Oh gosh, what a good question. I don't remember. And now you're making it. I'm going to have to go back and find out. Will you tell me? I'm so <laughs> curious what 17 or 18 year old, like when you, because I have a daughter right now and trying to like start writing the essay when there are a million things you're interested in and you're really young and filled with questions. Um, but I always think like I asked you because she and I were just talking about this and I could not remember what mine was about either. I just remember what a big deal it was to write it. And it's funny that it's no longer a clear memory. Um, no, so much of what I remember spending junior and senior year doing was like, I had a promise to my parents and really to myself that if I was going to go to NYU, which was very expensive and still is, um, you know, I was going to get as many scholarships as I could possibly get. So I would apply for two scholarships a week. And I just remember writing essays all junior and senior year about all kinds of things, which I don't remember which one was my main college essay, but I remember applying for everything from like, you know, granddaughters of men who served in World War II to like the local like you know chess club who had like a scholarship to offer it was truly like a circus in my house of me writing about all kinds of things to try to get these like scholarships everywhere and are you the kind of kid who's at the library and researching what the different scholarships are that are available to you or is this a guidance counselor like angel person who helped you it was you know I was lucky to be on the cusp where it was on the internet so I mm -hmm you know, went to the library that I grew up near a lot, but I mostly went to check out, um, you know, like Babysitter's Club's books. Luckily, like a lot of the scholarship stuff was on. And luckily there are hundreds of them. <laughs> yeah. You could never run out. Yeah, exactly. And your sister also um, has an amazing voice and you have an amazing voice. I've, you know, I've seen you perform. It was such a surprise for me to go to the first Christmas extravaganza <laughs> and you were performing and, I didn't know that you had such a glorious voice also. Were you ever um, thinking about going to NYU as a performer? You know, I loved performing growing up and thank you for even slightly thinking I can like, you know, share a stage with those folks. It um, it was something that I loved doing, but around the end of high school, I think I realized that I was never going to be a great performer. Um, and so I didn't want to start pursuing something that I, it wasn't, it didn't feel right. And I honestly think that um, when I was first discovering musicals through their cast recordings and every day at summer camp, I would like, you know, bring in Bat Boy and be like, we have to listen to this during lunch because everyone has to learn about this show. And it was yeah. Mary O'Keefe. And this is what theater it played at. And there was something that occurred to me that I didn't know quite what it was that I could do that would capitalize on that, that was way better and more unique of a thing to pursue than the idea of me as a performer. So I think just like the idea of how much I was like, I'm never gonna 
like be as good in musicals as other people, but I could love them like um, more than other people. And I could share that. And I just knew that there was something for me that wasn't performing. So it wasn't a dramatic moment. No, it definitely wasn't like giving something up. Um, Mm -hmm. I really, and I think this when I watch old videos, like I loved being in a cast and I loved being in like a group number and practicing the steps and like being backstage with everybody ready to go on. But for me, it wasn't like the things that, you know, actors describe as loving about acting weren't the parts of it that I loved. It was the family and the community. Yeah, which is also something an actor's love. But I think for actors, it's usually a combination. And, you know, the center stage spotlight singing and the applause, like that wasn't the part of it I responded to. Right. And also for a lot of us feeling so awkward and insecure if there wasn't a character to hide behind. So (laughs) I feel like you've always been so in your skin. You didn't need the camouflage of another character written by someone else. Like you've always had your own script and accessed it so easily which is just such an incredible thing. It feels like that was true at a very young age. Yeah, you know, I I definitely was someone who felt like she had things to share. And like I, to this day, it's not, um, you know, stage fright isn't part of it because I love getting on stage and talking about underappreciated musicals and if it only runs a minute and doing things like that, which are certainly like a cousin of performing. Yeah, well, I am. I feel really lucky to have a little time with you today and just to catch up. And if you have any last thoughts about like, if you had a crystal ball or if you were a psychic and could kind of turn, you know, the sands of time forward, just tell me your last thoughts about what it might look like or what the future of theater just for today. You don't have to be right. And tomorrow you could call me back and go, actually, it looks like this. But when you fantasize about it, the timeline and sort of how it happens, just tell me kind of stream of consciousness before we go what it looks like to you. Sure. You know, I think that um, it's undeniable that great things always come from not great times. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's not just because artists create extraordinary work about, you know, going through adversity. It's also just because, um, you know, people in the audience want to see that. And the most incredible, like fertile times for the art form aren't necessarily the times when the country has been the happiest. Um, And it's just such a, a, you know, balance. And I don't think anyone would ever say that we should trade one thing for another. But I remember, um, you know, the week that I moved to New York, the Republican National Convention was here. And I remember seeing, you know, people protesting outside of hairspray. And, um, you know, all kinds of moments like that have come back to me during this time, um, whether I've been thinking about something I experienced or thinking about, you know, how actors, you know, dealt with the 1918 pandemic. So, you know, as I said, there's like a lot to look at and be like, oh, maybe it'll be like this. Maybe it'll be like that. I do think in the crystal ball world, it's like, there's not one kind of theater that's going to emerge from this. You know, people are going to want to see theater that addresses what we've gone through and what we are going through. They're going to want theater that is uplifting and is escapism. There's this like, you know, people want to rush and be like, we're all going to want, you know, tap dancing spectacles. Um, Or, you know, we're all going to need theater that just addresses the issues. And what theater is amazing at is that it can be all of those things. Um, And so I do think that like, it's theater is going to continue to address like, what's happening directly, and also like our need to be, you know, connected and uplifted. Um, But you know, one thing I also spin around in my brain is that 
it's such a scary time for people financially. Um, and I think that the fact that we're going to need to figure out how to relaunch the theater based on who's going to, you know, have income to spend on tickets at the same time as we try to make theater more inclusive and more, um, you know, for everybody and like embrace the fact that this has showed us that everyone needs theater. So those two things kind of fight in my head a lot where I'm thinking, how do we do that? Um, especially at a time when, you know, everyone who's working in theater is also considering, um, Hey, if we have, you know, half of the audience there, we're going to need to them to spend X on tickets. Like there's just so much to deal with. So I just, basically, I hope that like moving forward, everyone can really come together and figure out how to like rebuild something that's not going to be, you know, utopia the day that we return, but that hopefully will be better and stronger than what we left. Um, but maybe not right away. Um, you also made me think of another thing that I think I'm really, you know, able to harness some hope for, which is that um, this time has forced us to embrace technology, obviously, in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. And I really am hopeful that there's going to be some system in place at some point in our future where actors and writers and producers and venues and, you know, artists in general can benefit from the streaming. Um, because I think that there's a very real possibility that when theater returns, and it will return, that if we're at partial capacity, there might be an opportunity to have a system that streams as well as has a live performance going on that can generate some some income for people. Um, But I do think that it's great that people are embracing that that's not in place yet. And so seeing how that's in the meantime. Yes. And until it is, we're happy to have it be shared as long as we can. And then when it can be a new model, as you just suggested, we'll we'll figure out that, you know, at the right time. Um, But we're all on the same team, you know, and that's what it really feels like. And that's a wonderful feeling. Totally, totally. And it's also, you know, I, again, like looking back at other moments of crisis in theater and in, you know, in general in the world and in New York, it's like, you just look at these good things that have come out of bad things. And that's been giving me a lot of, you know, optimism and hope. I think that um, one thing that I discovered in, you know, learning more about the 1918 pandemic is that the way that actors were treated during that, including the fact that there were actors on tour that were shut down in cities all over America who were then stuck because, you know, before the heyday of actors' equity, they didn't have the protections that would allow them to get, you know, a train ticket home even. And a lot of them were quarantined. Um, And then when the actors' equity strike the next year happened and actors got so many protections because they demanded them because of that time, um, you know, the world changed. The world changed for artists because of that strike. So um, I've just been kind of trying to see some of the little threads of good that came from adversity and, and bad times. That's incredible, Jen. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's when... Uh, the strike had happened the next year. Yeah, you know, I I wrote about it for my book a couple of years ago. I became so obsessed with the Actors' Equity Strike of 1919. I think that Joe, as well as Jason Williams, would tell you I like talked about nothing but that strike for like a week. <laughs> So it, it was interesting for me to, you know, thread that strike through the like facts about the pandemic, which honestly, one of the most shocking parts of reading about the 1918 pandemic was that a lot of theaters all over America shut down, but New York City didn't. And so obviously it was, you know, over 100 years ago, it was a very different time. But just learning about how um, they perceived the virus, how they perceived the live entertainment at that time um, was interesting. And the main thing that's been keeping me sane during this time has honestly been reading and trying to like learn because I feel like whenever we come back, like just being as prepared as possible with our brands will be so valuable. Totally. Well, on behalf of 
the entire community, maybe the world. Thank you for just being a light in our lives, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. And thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was just nice to hear your voice and talk to you. Hey, before I sign off, I just want to tell you guys one more thing. I have a new podcast out. It's called And the Award Goes To, and you can find it on the Broadway Podcast Network or really anywhere you listen to podcasts. It is an incredible journey that I take with 10 Tony winners where together we listen to their speech that they made the night they won, and then they just take me through their entire Tony experience, how the role came into their lives, what the role meant to them, what the challenges were, how it felt to be nominated, and more unbelievable, how it felt to win, and then what it is to wake up the next day after your lifelong dream has happened. Then what do you do? This 10-part limited series is something that started as a love letter to the Tonys when they were canceled this year and just turned into this whole other adventure. I'm so grateful to my guests, all of whom you love as much as I do. So check out And the Award Goes To. You're really going to enjoy it. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.